got two confessions to make. Uh, one, I've drank way too much coffee this morning. Uh, two, I get a little antsy when I know things are going long. Um, I'm not going to try to rush things, but I'm also not going to keep us here till 12.15. So that's my promise to you. Um, thank you all for joining us this morning. If you would turn in your worship folder or in your Bible to Psalm 8. That's uh, what we'll be uh, preaching and, and teaching on this morning. Uh, so if you would please stand with me as I read God's word. Heavenly Father, you are great and mighty. We come to honor and worship you. And Lord, we ask that you would come now and meet us here in your word. Lord, open our eyes and our hearts to all that you would have to say to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm chapter 8. To the choir master, according to the Giddith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is God's inspired word for us this morning. Please be seated. Now, the first thing to, to recall about Psalms is that these were written to be shared and then remembered. And the best way to remember words is by setting them to what? Music, right, or to, or to rhyme. So these would have been poems or songs that everyone would have known and sung. Psalm 8 is what we would classify as a hymn, meaning that it draws our attention to God. See, hymns characteristically open with this command or, or, or exhortation to praise God and then they give us a reason for why we should praise God. And then they close with praising God. It's sort of like um, a compliment sandwich. You know, if, you're, if you're in the business world, you might know that term. You know, if you want to critique somebody, the best thing to do is give them a compliment. Hey, great job coming into work on time every day. Right? And then you give the critique, but you really are terrible at your job. And then you close it with a compliment, but you're really punctual. Right? And so they, they walk away feeling, wow, he, he really likes me, you know. Um, it's a, a hymn is kind of like that, except uh, the exact opposite. This is a praise sandwich, right? We have the praise, God is great. And then we have the reason why God is great, because you've done amazing things. And then we close it again with another praise, God is great. Praise the Lord. And so it's, it's a classic hymn, Psalm 8, and then it's opening and closing are, are actually identical. You may have picked that up as we read it. Um, and, and it praises the Lord, and yet what we find sort of unexpectedly here in Psalm 8 is that the reason to praise God is because of man, which is so strange and foreign, right? We're praising God because he is awesome and incredible. And then as we're reflecting upon the good works that God has done, the gaze turns inward 
before once again turning outwards to God. And so I'll tell you, we're going three places this morning. I'm really going to highlight three things. The first is the immensity and intimacy of God. Okay, the second is the image of God found in man. And finally, the immaculate Christ, the incarnate God-man. We can also put it this way in three questions. Who is God? Who is man? And then finally, who is Jesus and why do we need him? Okay, we find that all here in Psalm 8. And so first, who is God? Well, well the psalm opens with this, this intimate and immense picture of God. David begins his hymn by saying, O Lord. And if you looked at, at, at your Bible, you might have seen that Lord is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And then it's followed by our Lord, and that Lord is capital L, and then lowercase o-r-d. Now, why is it doing that? You probably know this. These are two different words. The first one, the first Lord, the all-caps word, is the personal name of God that God gave first to Moses in the burning bush. Um, th- this would be Y-H-W-H. This, this actually is not a pronounceable word in the Hebrew. They, they wouldn't say this. We would call it Yahweh. Okay, but, but as they would refer to this word, they would use the word Jehovah. So, so God's personal name, oh Lord, you are, who what? Our God, and that, uh, our Lord, that second Lord, capital L, small O-R-D, is actually the term Adonai. This is master or king or, 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 or something along those lines, right? That's not an exclusive term used for God. The first one is God's name. When, when Moses asked God, hey, who should I say sent me to go talk to Pharaoh and the Israelites? The Lord says, I am. Right? The self-existent God. That there are no other gods. I am the God above every and all gods and every and all things. And as you think about the humanity, right? In every single culture that we find, there is some form of worship. Right, people worship gods. They create gods all over the place. Um, the neighbors of Israelites, we think of the Egyptians, they had many gods, hundreds if not thousands of gods. And often, if, like you find in, in some places today, each home would have their own personal god. Now, these gods weren't considered to be omnipotent or all-powerful. Right? They, they were more of a local deity. So, um, you know, you'd have the god of... Uh, whatever your neighborhood is. Maybe you'd have the God of your home, you'd have a God of a particular season or God of a particular type of crop, right? And, and these gods were limited in their scope and in their power. And, and the other thing about these gods is they honestly, for the most part, didn't care at all about humanity. Like, like they, they saw mankind as sort of a, a pest or a problem and, and they loved to just inflict damage and, and havoc and all sorts of things. If, if you've ever read the Greek mythologies, you'll know that, that the gods just kind of toy with mankind. And they, they treat them as, as sort of uh, playthings, if you were. They don't care about us. And yet, what do we find here? David says that we can have intimacy with the self-existent, sovereign Lord. This is the God of covenant. This is the God of relationship. This is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses. He's not just the God over Israel, but he's the God over all of the earth. 
And he's not just God of the earth, right? But he's our God. This is possessive. Not that, not that we in some way own God, but he's our God in the same way that we talk about our dad, right? Or our mom. They are, they are the rulers over us, hopefully, right? That, that, that we belong to them. God is our God because we are his people. And that's what David opens with. This incredible, immense God whose name is, is above all things and whose glory is beyond the heavens, meaning like there's no way to contain the glory of God, not just in the earth, not just in the sky. There's nowhere that, that he has set his glory above the heavens. And that is the God that we praise. He is immense. And he's intimate. And yet his power is probably best demonstrated through weakness. We see that here that babies and infants are declaring the glory of God in the face of his enemies. Uh, John Calvin wrote that God has no need for the powerful elegance of rhetoricians, nor even of distinct informed language, because the tongues of infants, although they do not as yet speak. They are ready and eloquent enough to celebrate it. Now, what do they celebrate? This intimacy with this immense God. He is glorious. He is majestic. And he is ours. And so the next question is, now knowing who God is, who is man? Right? Well, man, as we might know from Genesis chapter 1, is formed in the image of God. You can kind of picture this psalm as, as David is writing this, and, and he's sort of out in the hillside at night. And he's watching over his flock, and he's looking up at the sky, and what does he see? He sees the moon. He sees the stars. How many are there? Thousands, right? Thousands and thousands. And, and he's looking up, and, and he's kind of caught going, God is incredible. And, and there's sort of maybe this disassociation happening where, where he's realizing he's, he's looking at the creation of the all-powerful creator. Kind of like maybe if you've ever stood on the edge of the Grand Canyon and you looked out and you go, whoa, I'm not really as big or as important as I like to think that I am. You, know, you, you step, step out onto the edge of Montesano at sunset and you watch as the sky fills with incredible colors that you could never even imagine. Or you walk along the beach and as every wave comes crashing through and it never, ever stops, you kind of think, wow, I'm not quite as big as I think I am. See, I'm just a small piece in a big story. Now, I'm, I'm not much of a space person, um, although I do know a lot of rocket scientists. But the Voyager 1 is a space probe that was launched in the 1970s that was actually sent to, to go out of the solar system, right? A, a one-way ticket to wherever it winds up. On February 14th in 1990, at the request of Carl Sagan, uh, an astronomer for NASA, they commanded the Voyager 1 to turn its camera back around to Earth and take one final picture from a distance of 3.7 billion miles away. 
And a Voyager 1 was so far away that it took this picture months to come back to NASA. And then as, as it was developed, all you see in this image is the Earth appears as a tiny blue dot, less than a single pixel, which was caught in a band of sunlight that reflected off the camera. And, and this is what Carl Sagan wrote about that. He said, from this distinct vantage point, Earth might not seem of any particular interest, but for us, it's different. Consider again that dot, that's here, that's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, Every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species live there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. How small are we compared to the immensity of God? And David considers this, and, and he doesn't go quite to the lengths that, that Carl Sagan does, but he, he gets to this point where he says, the Lord's hands, his fingers formed the universe and the stars and the, and the moon. And how is it that those same very hands formed us? He says, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And what does it mean to be mindful? Well, to be mindful is simply to be on God's mind. And, and he's not saying, you know, to remember. Not as if God forgets about who we are, but this idea that, that God is vast and immense as he is, has never stopped thinking of us. Right? That, that he is always thinking about humanity in a very special way. And why is it? It's because man was created differently in the divine image of God. In Genesis 1, 27, the Bible tells us, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so this dignity and worth of humanity isn't something that we have to manufacture or discover on our own, but it's something that we're called to reveal and to delight in. Genesis 2 then gives us a, a zoom, zooms into how God did this and, and, and shows us that God formed Adam out of the dust of the earth and he, he, he forms him with his hands, puts him together and then stoops down, and, and this is sort of a strange language, God breathes life into the nostrils of Adam. That God gets face to face with humanity. And he, humanity was created to live face to to face with God. And it's after men and women were created, only after that did God describe his creation as very good. Right? Before that, it was good. And now it's double good in the Hebrew, good, good, very good. Uh, a friend of mine likes to say that, that God created man and woman on happy hour of Friday and then invited us to enjoy Saturday with him. 
So God created humanity different, unlike anything else he made. The psalm tells us that God, that God crowned man with glory and honor. See, these things belong to who? To the king. And yet God takes what is his and gives it to us, these image bearers of him. Every boy and every girl, every woman and man, every child is a bearer of the divine image of God. And it extends to every member of the human race. Not only that, scripture actually tells us that God has a special place in his heart for for four particular type of people. The ones that we so often overlook and neglect and mistreat. The widows and the orphans, the foreigners and the poor. There's just a couple of verses, Isaiah 1.16 or Psalm 68 where, where the psalmist says that, that God is the father of the fatherless and protector of widows. Or Deuteronomy chapter 10 when, when it says that he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner therefore for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So God loves and cares for people Probably an honest question to ask ourselves is, do we? Let's just be honest. It is really hard to love people sometimes. It's a lot easier to love a puppy or to love a kitten. Did you bring your kitten? Is it in your pocket? Okay. It's a lot easier to love something else, right? It's a lot easier to love something that's small and cute and cuddly than it is to love another person. I have a hard time loving the people that I like the people that live in the house with me, let alone people that are different than me or don't live near me or maybe have different ideas than I do or different views on things. See, God doesn't make accidents or mistakes. Each person was created on purpose and with a purpose, and that purpose was to reflect and magnify the radiance and the glory of God just as the moon was created to reflect the sun, to declare his majesty in all the earth. So we're part of that story, but but we're not the hero. And in fact, as we think about it, we've made quite a mess of things ourselves. Not only are we weak and feeble, but we're selfish and proud. And so often we fail to recognize the dignity that God has given to each and every life. And John Calvin also wrote that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face. And so often we forget who we were created to be. And then we forget who God created others to be, and we ignore, or we neglect, we mock, we tear down. We think that God only loves those who help themselves. We think that God only cares for people that can bring something to him or do something for him. See, we are desperately broken. And, and that's actually what David describes in the Psalms that surround this one. It's sort of strange that, that uh, Psalm 2 through Psalm 7 and, and 9 through 10, they describe like the chaos of, that is life. Uh, these enemies that are seeking to destroy David. He, he accuses God of forgetting him and neglecting him and he's filled with despair. He's overcome with guilt. He's wondering why God isn't there. Why God doesn't seem to be caring for him in the way that he needs it. See, it's hard sometimes to remember not only who we are, but to remember who God is. 
It can be so easy to look at the brokenness of the world and to think, you know what, those people deserve what's coming to them. You know, those, those terrible Muslim people that are persecuting my church, what do I want to pray for them? I want to pray God's justice on them. And yet, how does God call us to pray? Lord, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Or to, to love your enemies and to pray for them so that what God might do for them, what he has done for you. Which brings us to that final question of who is Jesus and why do we need him? Because we've made such a mess of this world. Right? Because we fell low, because we totally failed. Not, not just Adam, although Adam did it first. Okay, So you can blame him if you want to. But I've done it. And you've done it. Scripture tells us that everyone has done it, that all have fallen short. Every member of our human race, every image bearer of God has failed to live up to this divine command of the Lord. And so God sent Jesus. Right? When, when we messed up, God showed up. When we fell low, God came lower. And when we totally failed, God sent his son to come and to triumph once and for all over all things. And when we acknowledge this, we discover that this psalm, just as every aspect of scripture, is actually all about the work and praise of Jesus. And Jesus identifies himself in this psalm uh, in, in Matthew chapter 21. You can go and read that. Hebrews chapter 2 identifies Christ in this psalm. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks about the dominion that Jesus is going to have over everything. When God puts all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. See, God gave dominion to man, but all of that belongs to Christ Jesus. And at the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God came to restore everything exactly as it was before. So let me close by reading for you Philippians chapter 2. This is verses 5 through 11. It says, Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the name of Jesus is the majestic name that it is above every name. All glory belongs to him. All honor is his. He is the king. He deserves the praise. And he desires an intimate relationship with each and every one of us. Why don't you pray with me? Father God, we belong to you. Lord, you know the mess that we've made of our lives. You know the mess that is our world. And so often that drives us to despair or hopelessness or shame or, or all sorts of things. And yet you have called us to a better story. You have invited us in to the story that you are telling in Christ Jesus. Lord, when we were low, you came lower. When we needed rescued, you provided the rescuer. 
And Lord, you invite us now to become a part of your family, to join you on mission with your kingdom. Lord, that every man, woman, boy, and girl would hear the great message of the gospel. Lord, give us a heart for these incredible image bearers that you have filled this world with, that they might know, that they might see, and that they might reflect your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and join me as we sing hymn 310, Blessed Be the